I'm a 16-year-old, and I get excited about some super weird things. What this has looked like for the past two years is waking up at 5 a.m. every day to read research papers about CRISPR, and then getting home from school and spending hours talking with scientists around the world working at the intersection of CRISPR and agriculture. So basically, I'm just a massive science nerd. <laughs> and my goal for the next 12 minutes is to get you guys as excited as I am about the agricultural revolution that we're on the brink of. And I'd like to start with a little challenge. I'm gonna show you the largest innovations that have changed how we grow our food in the past 200 years. But I'm gonna do this in 45 seconds. So in 1815, canning was invented, which allowed us to make perishable foods, suddenly non-perishable. And then a few decades passed, and in 1835, the reaper was invented. And now we had a way to harvest entire fields of crops instead of spending weeks handpicking each individual one. And then, in 1909, came my personal favorite, nitrogen fertilizer, which provided crops with a concentrated array of nutrients in a usable form. Now, there have been dozens of these innovations all throughout history, which have created this exponentially increasing graph of global food production. But as the decades began to pass, this innovation in agriculture, it actually started to slow until we're here in 2023, and there hasn't been a major innovation in agriculture since 1952, when chemical pesticides were created. And just by looking at this graph, it doesn't seem like there's a big problem. But if we zoom in from the 1990s to now, projected onto 2050, you can see that the amount of food that we're producing is nowhere near the amount of food that we need to be producing to feed everyone on the planet. And this is a massive problem. And it makes me think of a guy named Thomas Malthus. <laughs> he was an economist, and in 1798, he came up with this theory that our population growth would surpass the growth in agriculture. Basically, we wouldn't be able to produce enough food to feed everyone on the planet, and then there would be a massive famine that would kill a lot of the population. Now, luckily, this didn't happen because he forgot about the superpower of humanity, and that's innovation. If we didn't innovate and create those things like canning and fertilizer, then his math would have checked out. And it's kind of ironic that after spending decades running away from this food crisis that Thomas Malthus was predicting, we are literally staring it right in the face. We are at this point where low innovation in agriculture is meeting a really high need and creating this crisis point, which has caused that graph of global food production to begin to level off instead of, to, instead of continuing to increase like we need it to. Now, by high need, I mean that there's a super large demand for food. The World Bank estimates that by 2050, we will require 75% more food to feed everyone on the planet. And we will need to produce this increase in food production on a warmer planet with more extreme weather events and fewer resources. So this makes me wonder, how are we going to produce enough food to feed everyone on the planet? Most people say that the answer to this question is to use more fertilizers, add more pesticides, or increase irrigation water. But the truth is that these are all band-aid solutions. They don't actually solve the real problem. That the way that we are producing food, it's fundamentally flawed. To solve this, we need to change how we think about agriculture. And the solution, in my opinion, is figuring out how to do more with less. The only way that we can produce 75% more food is to genetically engineer the crops that we grow to produce these larger yields, but with less resources. 
Now, let me address a question that a lot of you might be thinking. What does this 16-year-old know about anything, let alone gene editing crops? Well, for the past two years, I've been working on creating this super crop that I'm talking about. I have proposed an idea for a transgenic strand of corn targeted for Malawi, Sub-Saharan Africa, that produces 5.5 times larger yields with five new target genes. Now you might be thinking, corn, this is cool, but why? And it's because corn is super important. It feeds over a third of the global population, but it's also super inefficient. It takes 127 gallons of water to produce one head of corn. And it takes 85 pounds of fertilizer to also produce that one head of corn. This is ludicrous. So what I'm trying to do is take this resource-heavy, this hungry plant, and turn it into a plant that can do a lot more with a lot less. And I'm doing this by targeting and identifying the most effective genes in the entire maize genome. Now, before I explain my proposal, let's take a few steps back and clear up any misconceptions that you may have about a GMO. So this word, so this word gene editing, it's just a fancy umbrella term for a bunch of different sciences that give us the ability to change an organism's DNA. And we've been creating GMOs for the past 10,000 years. Started out just by crossbreeding two plants together, and then in the early 2000s, we had technologies like talons and ZFNs, but they were inaccurate. And when a gene was edited, it would cause an unintentional change somewhere down the genome, which is what we call an off-target effect. And I found it so exciting because now we have extremely precise gene editing technologies like CRISPR that can edit DNA right down to the individual base pair with basically no off-target effects. So CRISPR is this awesome tool and we've been using it in healthcare to cure things like sickle cell disease and cystic fibrosis. But how do we use this tool in crops? And it's this application part of CRISPR in agriculture that is the final piece in this entire jigsaw puzzle and that's gene sequencing and gene mapping. So gene sequencing is finding the order of A's, C's, T's, and G's in an organism's DNA. And then gene mapping is finding the correlation between a specific gene and then its function. And now with companies like Illumina and improved AI and machine learning, we've been able to sequence and map the genome of all major crops to a level of detail that has really never before been possible. And it's because of improvements in these three technologies gene sequencing, gene mapping, and CRISPR, we can engineer any crops to produce larger yields. So let's say you want to create a strand of corn that produces 10 times larger yields. So to do this, there are a few different levers that you can pull. You can make the plant resistant to pests, or increase the temperature range that the plant can survive at, or you can decrease the amount of water that the plant needs to survive. And then it's all of these levers that when smushed together into the same plant, then produce these larger yields. <laughs> and this is not easy. I'm making it sound easy, but it's not at all. The exact A's, C's, T's, and G's that produce that change must be found and then isolated in the DNA. A guide RNA must be created, a plasmid must be designed, and all of this is crazy hard science. And the thing that just blows my mind is that incredibly smart scientists have figured out how to do this process of creating a GMO really well. So we have the technology and we have the science, and now it's just a matter of finding the most effective genes to target. And that's what I'm working on. For the past two years, I've spent 
hours and hours every day reading research papers about improved crop varieties and newly discovered genes that correlate with these higher yields. I've been talking with the scientists and their researchers doing the crazy hard science. And through my research, I found five genes that haven't been used before in transgenic corn. And I've created plasmids of each of these changes in benchling. I have presented this proposal to scientists at the International Maze and Wheat Improvement Center and universities like MIT and Harvard who say that if the five genes that I found were engineered perfectly inside corn, this would increase corn yields by 5.5x. Now, let me give you a bit of context on my proposal. So didn't you know that when the same seed that we grow here in North America, when that same seed is grown in Malawi and Sub-Saharan Africa, the yields are five times lower, which creates this endless poverty loop of really low yields and then really low incomes. So my proposal is trying to solve these problems that keep yields in Malawi so low. Things like local pests and like a super long dry season. So imagine if there was a strand of corn that needed 60% less water, grew at 30% higher temperatures, contained 215% more nutrients, and is resistant to basically all pests and diseases. I mean, that would be pretty cool, right? Well, this is what my proposed strand of corn can do. And for all of you nerds like me in the audience, let me give you a sneak peek into two of these genes that I found. So the first is abscisus acid, which is a plant hormone that opens and closes the stomata inside plant leaves. When it opens, it lets sunlight and CO2 into the cell, and then it regulates where these inputs travel through the plant xylem. So my idea is to use CRISPR to hack into the ZMPLY12 gene, which is the gene that creates abscisus acid and insert the UQ1 gene, which will cause abscisus acid to keep a layer of the stomata closed and conserve water. Now, just this tiny tweak alone, it decreases the amount of water that corn needs by 60%. And here's another example, phytic acid. Phytic acid is what we call an anti-nutrient in corn, which means that it prevents the body from absorbing the nutrients in food, which then leads to nutrient deficiencies and malnutrition. The biosynthetic pathway that creates Phytic acid is called the MIPS pathway. And my idea is to use CRISPR to perform a triple gene knockout to effectively cut out the three key genes at the start of the MIPS pathway to prevent phytic acid from ever being created, which then increases the total nutrient contents of corn by 215%. Now, there are three more genes that I've identified in corn, one that has to do with growing time, one that has to do with temperature adaptability, and one that has to do with pest resistance. And there are probably at least another 13 other genes, just like this in corn, that haven't even been discovered yet. Now, if we execute perfectly and all this super hard science works out, we can create a, trans a transgenic strand of corn that produces 10 times larger yields with 10 times less resources. And it's not just corn that this works for. There are the same amount of these target genes and all other grains and legumes and rice and wheat and potato and soybean. Now, imagine if every crop we grow was genetically engineered to do more with less. This is the scale of innovation that we need in agriculture to produce 75% more food to feed everyone on the planet, to finally start making real gains at solving food insecurity and malnutrition. And this is the reason why I am so excited about agriculture. Thank you.
Point of working? No? All right, there we go. Hey everyone, my name is Alex, and just like Rachel, I love talking about core. So a bit of backstory on me. I'm from Toronto, and I'm 17 years old. And a lot of my friends always say that I look and act older than I actually am. And it's gotten pretty bad. You know, they've gotten to the point where they start calling me grandpa. But honestly, you know what, I'm okay with that name because I love learning from older people and all of the experiences that they've had. And if there's one thing that the older people in my life have taught me about, it's red flags. You know when you're scrolling through Tinder, if my slides will cooperate, <laughs> you know when you're scrolling through Tinder and you're mostly swiping left, well, I mean, at least if I am, and you come across this person that really catches your eye. You think they might be the one. Now, Chloe, she looks like a sweet girl. She's, she's new to town, so maybe she'll give a guy like me a shot before she's seen all the other guys. Um, she's never been to the movie theater, which is kind of weird, but I guess that's acceptable. But then you get to that last point. She doesn't like cats and dogs. I mean, what kind of a person doesn't like cats and dogs? What kind of maniac are you? Where did you come from? That's what I like to call a red flag. But then you see this. To the outsider, it looks like a perfectly normal field of corn. It looks healthy. There's nothing to say that it might be diseased. But what you forgot to see is all the way in the back is this leaf of corn. Now, if you're not a farmer, you might think that this is perfectly normal, um, just a healthy husk of corn. But in the farming world, this is what we like to call a red flag. This is northern corn leaf blight, which is one of the most severe diseases affecting U.S. cornfields today. Not only is this a red flag for you, it's also a red flag for all of the farmers around you. Because this is a fungal disease, it spreads very easily, and it's now threatening your entire community. What most people don't realize is the fact that every single year, we lose 20% of our global crop production due to disease. And what's even worse is the fact that farmers simply view this as a cost of doing business. And this cost of doing business results in over $200 billion of wasted crops every single year. Now, to put into context just how much $200 billion is, Take all of Big Pharma's revenue. I'm talking companies like Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. Take that money, stack it into a big pile of cash, probably all the way up to the roof, and just set it all on fire. That's how big of a problem this is. Can you imagine what Elon Musk would do if he saw that 20% of our crop production was being lost in its first stage? I mean, if there's one thing that I know for sure, it's that a lot of people are getting fired and there are some processes being optimized. But why is it this way? That's not an easy question to answer because there are a lot of aspects to that question. Now, one aspect is the fact that agriculture as an industry has grown complacent, right? All of the sexy work has moved out to AI, SaaS, social, you name it, and agriculture has been literally and figuratively left in the dust. 
it, it's been literally and figuratively left in the dust. What am I saying? Hold on. <laughs> Another aspect, yeah, sorry, my clicker. Okay, perfect, thank you. It's been literally and figuratively left in the dust. What you don't realize is that farmers don't have the tools they need to accurately diagnose and treat Crohn's disease. They're still driving around their fields and visually inspecting them for any signs of disease, which is the same method that they were using back in the 1920s. So can you imagine in the over century of innovations that we've made since then, we still haven't found a better method to find and treat corn disease and crop disease in general. They, so why is this still an issue? Well, sorry. So we still haven't found a better solution to this disease. And okay. thank you. <laughs> So this is exactly what I'm working on. I love solving these sorts of problems. And what I'm doing is I'm building a solution that uses drones and computer vision to solve this problem. So remember that picture of northern corn leaf blight that I showed you earlier? This is the output of my model. So here we can see that the disease is highlighted in blue and further classified with what type of disease this is. What's really cool about this is that this can be put onto any drone with an onboard computer and a camera. And essentially, you can take the live data feed from that camera, put it onto the computer, and process any disease that you see in real time. What's even cooler is the fact that you can attach a fungicide bay to that drone, and as soon as any disease is detected, you can spray it with the fungicide right on the spot. Now this does two things. It saves the farmer money on any lost fungicide that they would have occurred otherwise because of the wasteful treatment, and also they're not having as much of an environmental impact as they were before. Yeah, perfect, thank you. Uh, so why are we solving this problem now? Well, number one, it has massive impact. Even if you don't care about the over 800 million people around the world who are going hungry every single day while you eat three square meals, this is a huge market with very healthy margins, right? The, this, uh, the solution to corn disease is simple. You save the farmer money, take a piece of the pie, and scale. Number two is that we've developed the new technology over the past, past couple years to tr effectively treat this problem and actually put those solutions out into the field. So think drones, right? Skydio has just raised at over $2 billion, and they're building drones with an onboard camera and onboard computers to fly themselves automatically for just over 1000 bucks. I don't even have to mention all of the advances we've made in machine learning, from ChatGPT to Tesla's autopilot to all of the innovative AI solutions that have pitched you this weekend. Number two, uh, number three, is that this is a non-obvious industry. When you think about ways to make an impact on the world, this likely doesn't even make your top 10 list. What's more, if you're not looking for this solution, uh, for this problem in particular, it's unlikely to ever even occur to you. Now, 5% seems like an arbitrarily small number. 
sure, I guess it's the difference between an A and a B on an assignment. But in this case, 5% of safe crops result, results in over $10 billion of savings for farmers, creating additional revenue for farmers who are already struggling to make ends meet. Of course, there are some technical challenge with, challenges with making the solution. You may be thinking drone battery life, fungicide dispersal, or even the amount of time and resources that we would have to dedicate. But what I want to point out is that this isn't a fundamental problem with physics. There aren't any laws of physics that we're breaking. This is simply a technical problem that is a function of the amount of time, resources, and talent that we throw at it. I mean, if we're th sending rockets into space that can come down and land themselves, and we're replacing your need for a significant other with a large language model, I'm pretty sure we'll figure this one out. To solve this problem, we really need to do what makes sense. We're going to have an ever-increasing need for food going into the 2050s, and we have the technology waiting in our hands just to use it to make the solution. So join me in creating the solution and making crop disease a problem of the past. Thank you. Corn presentations, amazing. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. I know, it's corny. <laughs> I'm Emma, I'm 16 years old, I'm from Boston, and I'm super excited to talk about how we can use data in digital twins to solve problems in climate change. So you can see on this photo here, I was in rural Panama recently, and I saw these women collecting water from what looks like a swamp, right? And in fact, this is their clean water source. And I was really disappointed by this because, you know, I'm able to get water from my faucet all the time. So I researched more into this problem, and it turns out that this swamp is the reality for 2.4 billion people every single day. And so I looked further into this problem, and I found that one of the causes of this is our warming climate. In fact, for every degree that our planet warms, we can see a 7% increase in precipitation. And you might think that, okay, 7%, it's not that much. In fact, 7% increase in precipitation, that's enough water to fill 13 trillion Olympic-sized swimming pools. Good luck, Michael Phelps, swimming in all of those pools. So, but the problem doesn't just stop here. When we have all of this rainfall, all of this water is acidic, and dumping 13 trillion Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of water all over our Earth is going to create more problems, like agricultural flooding, ecosystem damaging, and excess bacteria growth in water. And when I was researching into these problems further, I was so overwhelmed with the amount of data that is available in all of these things. In fact, my computer actually crashed three times when I was trying to download all of the data, uh, or a bunch of data on water, information on water, bacteria growth, like precipitation and different you know, pH levels of water. And so this just, I was so overwhelmed with this amount of data. And in fact, every single day we collect 
2.5 quintillion bytes of data. This is a crazy amount of data collected every single day. And, I mean, we can't even fathom this number. The best way I can think of to explain this is if we took all of this data and we converted it to 1990s floppy disks, by 2025, if we stacked them one after another like this, we could reach the moon and back 5,000 times. It's a crazy amount of data that we have here. But what's even crazier than this data is the fact that we only use 25% of it. This means that three-fourths of all this information that we spend so much time and effort in using IoT sensors to collect just goes unused. In fact, I was talking this morning with the CIO of Shell, and he was telling me it, for Shell, it's actually less than 25%. They estimate it's 3%, which is crazy that we're only using 3% of all this data. And in fact, if we used more of this data, theoretically, we could be solving these problems right here, but we're not. And the truth is, we suck at using data. But what if we didn't? So recently, I learned about a project from the European Union. They're creating a virtual replica of all of Earth. It's called Destination Earth. The marketing team has made it, shortened it to destiny. And basically, I, when I was learning about this, I didn't think it seemed possible. How could we possibly take all of this data and model it in all of our complex systems in Earth and create a virtual replica of Earth? But it turns out we can using a technology called digital twins. And it's more than just the buzzword. So a digital twin is a virtual replica of a physical object or group of objects or ecosystem. And using all of this real-time data that's collected, we can, we can use all of this data to then optimize using machine learning algorithms. We can optimize for future decisions. But I still thought this seemed impossible. How could we clone things? We can't do that usually. And so, it turns out, though, that this is a, a digital twin is used a lot in the automobile industry. In fact, Tesla, our good friend Elon, every single Tesla that's created, there's a digital twin made of it. And these digital twins are used to, to uh, optimize for ma maintenance, whether that be in the actual Tesla or in the supply chain of the Tesla. And so from here, let's think about how we'd actually scale back and put this into our climate, because we can see we can do this with Teslas. So how would we actually go about creating an entire replica of Earth? Well, we'd start, at the start, makes sense, with gathering historical data. So this would be things like NASA's satellite imaging, things like wind patterns, past crises that have happened. And we take all of this data and we use it to train a machine learning algorithm. And once we have all of this information, from here we then put it all into a system where we can create a virtual image of all of this data. So for example, CAD design software. So we can, ha we can see what it looks like. We could see a, a sort of replica of Earth. And from here, then we would actually take all this data from our IoT sensors and we integrate it into this CAD system. And then we test and we train further to make sure that it's optimized. And from here, we can actually optimize for decision making. But here's the thing. We don't need a digital twin for every decision we make. Okay, let's give us humans some credit. We don't need a fancy buzzword to make a whole bunch of decisions, to make decisions where the outcome is pretty clear. So for example, I'll give you an example. We don't need a digital twin to know that it's not a good idea to dump a whole bunch of ice cubes into the ocean to prevent the ocean temperature from increasing. Do you guys agree? We don't need to dump a whole bunch of ice cubes into the ocean, right? We don't need a digital twin to know that. We can see 
If we do this, then that will happen. But what about for decisions that have a lot, that are a lot more complex than just this one right here? Decisions that, that nth order thinking is so much more difficult to reason out. So I'll give you an example of this. In Yellowstone, in the, 19, in the early 1900s, a bunch of farmers were annoyed that their wolves were affecting their cattle. And so these farmers decided to kill off all of the wolves. Well, from here, when we kill off a bunch of top food chain animals, we create more problems. So deer, for example, which the wolves used to eat, now there's nobody eating them, so the deer population skyrocketed. And when you have a whole bunch more deer, well, the deer eat a bunch of shrubs. And these shrubs, then, we're going to have fewer shrubs because we have more deer, right? It makes logical sense. But the problem here is that the shrubs are what line the rivers. And so when there aren't these shrubs lining the rivers anymore, the rivers widen. And when the rivers widen, that means that the water level is going to decrease. And with decreasing water levels, that means that, means that then we wouldn't, that the water temperature will increase, which from here means that we have a whole bunch of dead fish, which frankly is disgusting. I mean, look at that photo. But it causes more problems, and we, I don't need to spend a whole bunch of time going through all the problems of what happens when you kill off a major food source. But it's decisions like these. That's what we need to use a digital twin for. For when we can't see the immediate outcome of an action, or when one of our decisions goes so much further than just, you know, the ice cubes and water. We know that. But when we don't have a decision that has a bunch more ripple effects, that's when we need to use a digital twin. And in fact, we're lucky that this Yellowstone incident was one that is it's isolated, right? I mean, today we have a bunch of wolves, and we don't have a deer population that's skyrocketed. But what about if we, we, can't, we can't have another Yellowstone on a global scale? I think you guys would agree. And because of this, we need to use digital twins to simulate different, different solutions or measure impact of our climate decisions so that we can make the correct decision the first time around. I'm Emma, thank you so much. All right, hello, hello. My name is Valkyrie Holmes. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. <laughs> uh, I'm currently working within the wildfire prevention industry on Ember Bazaar, my company that aims to create a new sustainable method of mitigating wildfire risk. Uh, I'm currently a 776 fellow, and I'm part of a climate fellowship that Alexis Ohenian started to give 20 climate fellows two years of dedicated work towards solving issues within the industry. Uh, in the past, I worked at NASA Seas Institute for data science on meteorite research while completing my apprenticeship at MIT on electrical engineering. And this past summer, I worked with SpaceX on uh, different mechanisms within the payload industry. And throughout that, for the last two years, I've been working in the wildfire industry, first in hard tech for containment purposes, and then now pivoting to more of the root cause of the issue, which is prevention. At Ember Bazaar, we're creating and redesigning a whole new method of wildfire mitigation that starts with the community base. Right now, a lot of companies in the space really approach things from an individual level, so single homeowners, single plots of land, et cetera but we need to start realizing that we can't approach it from an individual way anymore. We have to be doing large-scale mitigation projects. 
So what we've created it is, is essentially an HOA-type system or a fire association where residents opt in for a small monthly fee and get provided all of the tools that they need for wildfire mitigation that they could ever possibly want. So that means we create assessments for them, we give them grant funding, and most importantly, we're educating them on the impacts of climate change while reducing their insurance and overall making the whole neighborhood a lot safer. Now, I am committed to creating a future where we are consistently preventing preventable wildfires. And I wanna tell you a story. So I'm from Vegas, and one day, a couple years back, I'm driving with my dad in the car early morning, and we look out and we see a sunrise. And this sunrise is so beautiful, all the colors in the air, and I ask him, I'm like, this is such a great image, this is so beautiful. And his response was, oh, it's probably because of the wildfires and the pollution in the air. And what I didn't know is that Vegas is a valley. And what happens when you're in a valley is that during wildfire season, all of the smoke and sudden ash right on the border comes up over the mountain and settles in the valley. And that's where my dad works. That's where my sisters go to school. And all of my friends and family and teachers are residing in this valley. And all of a sudden, I'm very aware of this problem and this natural disaster happening a state over that's already directly impacting the people that I care about. And not only that, I started taking this hike up to the largest peak, the highest peak in Nevada every year for the past three years. And originally it was a physical feat, but now it's more of something to remind me that this is what I'm fighting for. And so this is a picture. It's of a burnt forest of a fire that happened in 2008 around the Mount Charleston area in Las Vegas. And I walk through this burnt forest every year and can't help but notice, wow, there should have been thousands of species and trees that have been around for hundreds of years, but now it just lays dead and abandoned, and no one has done anything about it since 2008. So this is what a typical forest looks like. We're all very familiar, dense trees, luscious landscapes, etc. but what you don't really know is that this isn't what forests should look like. They should actually look like this. They should be patchy. They should have evidence of regular wildfire activity. And that is because we need to keep the fuel on the forest floor low. Because of climate change, we have longer, hotter, drier climate seasons, and now all of the fuel on the forest floor gets burnt just like that. So we need to be doing wildfire prevention work, vegetation management work, to be able to keep our forests like the original image, but also restore them back to their patchy state. And now we have another problem. Neighborhoods are in these high-risk areas. So now we have all of these people living in these high-risk areas, Napa Valley, a lot of places in Northern California, and now all along the West Coast because of the impacts of climate change, and they have no idea what to do. And a lot of these people have been living on this land for 20, 30 years, same old thing all the time, and now we have to tell them that we have to approach this issue in a completely different way. And so it's really jarring for them, and we need to make that consistent and clear and lower the barrier to entry as much as possible. Now, in terms of the climate change impact of wildfires, we're pretty sure wildfires are bad for the environment. Um, but in terms of the actual impact, we really need to hone in on the fact that it is quite literally devastating for our forests to be as overgrown as they are. Right now, we're spending over $10 billion fighting wildfires, the equivalent of an entire James Webb telescope operation on fighting wildfires with a system that hasn't been changed in 100 years. And not only that, but these wildfires are increasing and releasing almost 830 million tons of CO2 into the, year, into the air every year. Now, this is a big issue, and don't get me wrong, I'm all for reforestation and planting trees and that whole movement, but historically, the way that we've planted trees in the past 
has made our forests extremely hard to manage. And because they're so hard to manage, we end up not managing them properly. And so we lead to things like this that obviously aren't great for the environment. But fear not, there are companies in the space that are working to mitigate these risks. For example, there's rain technologies. And they're working on autonomous firefighting helicopters that are able to spot wildfires in the forest and put them out, extinguish them in less than 10 minutes. And they're using fleets of these things to mitigate the risk before it even really becomes that much of an issue. And then we have Pano. Pano is an AI company that's dedicated to finding and using their network of interconnected drones to be able to target wildfires and assess whether they're necessary for the health of the forest or they're just a flare-up or they have the potential to turn into a raging inferno. And now we even have local organizations like Napa Firewise that are helping to educate their communities, provide them with assessments and funding, and really just help with the overall landscape of mitigation and vegetation management. And we're actually working with Napa Firewise on a pilot to help mitigate at least 100 properties by the time wildfire season comes around. And this is an extremely necessary project, not just for Napa Valley, where 100% of their residents are at risk, not a single person is not at risk, but for all of the residents on the West Coast living in these valleys, living in these West Coast, living in these high-risk areas. And now, if we were successful on this pilot by wildfire season, which is becoming increasingly longer, but if we're successful, we're able to mitigate their risk by almost 100%. And if we were to apply the same system to all the acreage that was burnt back in 2020, uh, so let's say in California alone, there were 4.3 million acres burnt. If we were to replicate the same system, we would have reduced our CO2 emissions by over 100 million tons. Now, I want to keep this short and say that wildfires, we all know, are an extremely prevalent issue, and especially now. They're growing, and they're becoming longer and hotter and affecting so many people. And people in Napa Valley, people in all these high-risk areas, their grapes go sour, they shut down their wineries, and it ruins the natural rhythm of life for millions of people. The Dixie Fire, back in 2020, had 460,000 acres burnt over five counties, and that shouldn't have spread that far. And the Camp Fire, back in 2017, that campfire actually displaced over 27,000 people and destroyed an entire town. And then most recently in 2020, the glass fire that actually ravaged through Napa Valley displaced another 27,000 people in a time where the world was shut down. So we have innovation, we have the solutions to this, and all these companies are committed to keeping people safe. And so are we. And we need to continue to invest in before, investing in the education, and investing in the health of our forest. My name is Valkyrie again. We're currently raising our pre-seed round and looking to hire at Ember Bazaar. So if anyone is interested, I'll be around the conference uh, for the next couple of days. And I would love to talk to anyone that is involved. We're also expanding pilots right now to other states along the West Coast. So thank you so much.